The story of the Tower of Babel is confusing. Is it really a story that just answers the question of how we ended up with so many people groups and languages? Was Yahweh really mad at people for progressing as a society, or is there more going on here? Today, Jeff and I began in Genesis 11 and thread the roots of this story to the beginnings of the early church. I love what I gleaned from this conversation, and I can't wait to share it with all of you. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as the people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to each other, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and they had tar for mortar. And they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower whose top reaches to the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be scattered over the face of the whole earth. Then Yahweh came down to see the city and the tower that humankind was building. And Yahweh said, Behold, there are one people with one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. So now nothing that they intend to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language there, so that they will not understand each other's language. So Yahweh scattered them from there over the face of the whole earth, and they stopped building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, for there Yahweh confused the language of the whole earth, and there Yahweh scattered them over the face of the whole earth. Ugaritic texts tell us everything we know about Canaanite religion. From it we know they worshipped El Elyon, God Most High, and that El had 70 sons. Among these sons of El were Dagon, Baal, Yam, and others you've probably heard of. The 70 sons of El are interesting. We see this number popping up in scripture frequently. It was a number of the nations descended from Noah in Genesis 10, the number of people who traveled with Jacob to Egypt in Genesis 46, the number of elders chosen for Israel in Numbers 11, and the number of disciples of Christ sent out in Luke 10. All of these examples where the number 70 appears are instances of God providing for his people and setting up nations. The Old Testament examples have to do with Yahweh providing the way for Israel, ensuring their survival and success, while the New Testament example ensures the establishment of his kingdom that Jesus was here to initiate. Welcome back to Strangely Biblical. Hey, Jeff. Hey, Shelby. Okay, today's episode, we are going to be tracking a theme through scripture. So we're going to be hitting several passages. Just stay with us. Promise it all comes together at the end. And it's really fascinating. So we're in Genesis 11, and this is the Tower of Babel narrative. And it's honestly one of those stories that's confusing to people. You see the people of Earth, they're united, they're getting along, they're seemingly progressing as a society. What's the harm? What's going on here? And why does Yahweh need to intervene? I think at the end of the day, it, it points out pride that the people had. Um, they were trying to make a name for themselves. And in so doing, they're honoring themselves and not Yahweh. 
Disobedience to Yahweh's command to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth may have been part of it as well. But ultimately, at the end of the day, they were honoring themselves by making this tower, trying to make a name for themselves. And they were afraid of being spread out all over the earth. What they're building is in itself a problem as well, because this is not just a tower. Uh, it's not just an innocent building project. It was something that was meant to be a stair step down so that the gods could descend to earth. And they were helping God out by doing this. This tower was a ziggurat. It is a step pyramid building with a shrine at the top reserved for a divine being. The goal in reaching the heavens is to invite the God down that they were worshiping and interact with humanity. And I think something that's really sinister about this is it's reminiscent of what happened in Genesis 6 when the sons of God came down to earth, that they're essentially trying to maybe invite that same thing to happen again in ways. Yeah, where that was a mountain, this is a man-made mountain. Right. It was something else that they could use to step down onto earth. So basically, it's like they're trying to manufacture their own mountain to recreate a similar event. Yeah. And I guess, you know, mountains were seen as these these places where heaven and earth intersected. As a mountain peak reaches into the heavens, maybe we can create this tower that does the same thing and, and make this connection point. Yep. So what do we see as Yahweh's solution? So he comes down, he confuses the languages, uh, and in so doing, he divides mankind. And he forces them to spread across the face of the earth. More is going on here than meets the eye when you read Genesis 11 alone. And that takes us to Deuteronomy 32, to broaden our understanding. Moses is nearing death and sings this song of Israel's history over the people as part of his farewell. When the Most High apportioned the nations, at his dividing up of the sons of humankind, he affixed the borders of the boundaries of the people according to the number of the sons of God. For Yahweh's portion was his people, Jacob the share of his inheritance. So at the Tower of Babel, God is not just confusing people's languages. He's also disinheriting the nations. He tells them, I am no longer your God. You want to follow other gods? Have at it. Do whatever you will. And it says that he divides the nations according to the number of the sons of humankind. You know from our intro that we talked about the number 70. And if you look at the chapter before Genesis 10, you see this table of nations and you see that there are 70 nations if you went through and counted them. Some versions, if you count them, you'll see 72. You'll also see that number 72 repeated instead of the number 70 in those versions uh, because they're based on different manuscripts. We're going to have an entire podcast episode to explain who the sons of God are specifically. For now, you just need to understand that they are not the Most High. They are created by Him. They are His sons and they are made princes over the nations here in this passage. So something I want to flesh out a little bit more, I think, is in Genesis 11, the nations are divided. We learned from Deuteronomy 32 that they were allotted to the sons of God. What do you think that actually looked like? I see that as a rejection of Yahweh's guidance and governance. And whenever we're upsetting Isaiah right now, so if you look back at Isaiah, you see 
them kind of rejecting God. And if they're rejecting God, God is going to give them over to, well, it goes through the Assyrians and then eventually Babylon. You have the king of Assyria at one point saying that I move the borders of the peoples. And you can see that in context of this as a complete affront to God. God was the one who fixed the borders of the peoples. So I kind of see God placing governors in charge of these places. And by having those governors there, they were supposed to keep the peace. They were supposed to make sure that the poor weren't afflicted. And that's why we have the reference in Psalm 82 that they didn't do those things. And they are going to be punished as a result. And yeah, they didn't enact justice. So they're going to get the fruits of that. And they're going to die just like any prince. So the the sons of God were set as regents, governors over these set lands that God divided. And the people are dispersed. At some point, they stop doing what they're supposed to be doing. And that's why we have all these other nations that worship other gods that are they're involved in types of sin that Israel is like directly told, do not get involved in those types of things. That's what the other nations do. It's like they all kind of, it's like they all kind of fell into similar things that were opposite of what Yahweh wanted. Yeah. And because Israel wanted to do those things, he rejects them ultimately. Not a permanent rejection, but he's going to bring them back. Um, but he's going to bring back everyone, not just Israel. Israel is put on the same plane as all the rest of the Gentile nations whenever God rejected them. But then God's going to elevate everyone back to where Israel was originally established. So it's important to realize that when God has a chosen people, it doesn't mean that he only likes them and doesn't, doesn't care about the other humans on earth because his goal was to always bring them back together because he does care about those made in his image. Yeah. And I think of it as God was still the only one worthy of worship in all of these other nations. He gave those angels jobs to do. And it's easier to think of them as angels because that is easier for our mind to wrap around, but he gave them jobs to do. They weren't doing it effectively but God placed a special attention and focus on Israel. That was his allotted heritage. That was his people. And I can kind of think of this as um, a kingdom. If you think of like the kingdom of Babylon, where you had Nebuchadnezzar was the governor of the city of Babylon and the surrounding territories. Well, he had an entire empire and he would have different rulers over different areas, but he would still have total control over Babylon itself. So as the Most High, all these lesser gods are governing these people, but Yahweh is supposed to still be at the top. They're still supposed to be answering to him. And I think that I think that the first time I heard about the, the disinheritance of the nations, that was the whole part I found a hard time understanding. It's like, why would God allot peoples to other gods and then be mad at them for worshiping them? I was missing that piece of, no, they were always supposed to be just regents while 
Yahweh was still the most high over it all, overseeing the entire kingdom, like you said. Yep. Psalm 82 gives us a little peek into what happened with the sons of God when they rebelled against Yahweh. We don't know when it happened, only that it did. God stands in the divine assembly. He administers judgment in the midst of the gods. How long will you judge unjustly and show favoritism to the wicked? Judge on behalf of the helpless and the orphan. Provide justice to the afflicted and the poor. Rescue the helpless and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. They do not know or consider. They go about in the darkness, so that all the foundations of the earth are shaken. I have said, you are gods and sons of the Most High, all of you. However, you will die like men, and you will fall like one of the princes. Rise up, O God, judge the earth, because you shall inherit all the nations. Um, I think another thing just to point out briefly is that when Yahweh divides the nations and keeps back Israel for himself, this is part of why the Holy Lands was so important that this land was allotted to Israel, that this land of Canaan. I think when I was younger, hearing about the promised land, it was like, yeah, they're going to this land, but like, I guess the significance of it is lost when you don't understand how the nations were divided with their borders fixed. That um, we even see, was it Naaman who believed the land was so holy that when he was even going back to his land, he wanted to take some of the dirt with him so that he could worship on their actual dirt. That there's so much of a deeper um significance to the land itself in this division. Agreed. In Deuteronomy 32, we also see that Yahweh has his own portion, his own people, Jacob, which we know is Israel. What sometimes isn't immediately recognized is that Israel does not exist yet. If you read back over Genesis 10, like Jeff just said, we see the 70 nations are listed out. You will not find Israel among them. Genesis 12 opens up with Yahweh choosing Abram from among the nations to establish a nation for himself, and that's Israel. He immediately seeks to establish this nation through his chosen vessel, Abraham. Fast forwarding in time, we know the patriarchs remain loyal to Yahweh. Joseph ends up in the land of Egypt, um, landing the entire Israelite population there. They enter Egypt as 70 people. When they're enslaved by Pharaoh who doesn't know Joseph, they must be saved. Yahweh chooses Moses to lead the people out of Egypt. Their numbers have reached 600,000, not including women and children. During their time in the wilderness, Moses is the only leader over that many people, and this is unsustainable. Numbers 11 tells us that story. Moses heard the people weeping according to their clans, each at the doorway of their tents. Then Yahweh became very angry, and in the eyes of Moses it was bad. And Moses said to Yahweh, Why have you brought trouble to your servant? Why have I not found favor in your eyes, that the burdens of all these people would be placed on me? 
Did I conceive all these people? If I have fathered them, that you could say to me, carry them in your lap, just as a foster father carries the suckling on the land that you swore an oath to their ancestors? From where do I have meat to give all these people? They weep before me saying, give us meat and let us eat. I am not able to carry all these people along alone. They are too heavy for me. If this is how you are going to treat me, please kill me immediately. If I find favor in your eyes and do not let me see my misery. And Yahweh said to Moses, Gather for me seventy men from the elders of Israel, whom you know are elders of the people and their officials. Take them to the tent of assembly, and they will stand there with you. I will come down and speak with you there. I will take away from the spirit that is on you, and I will place it on them, and they will bear the burdens of the people with you. You will not bear it alone. So Moses went out, and he spoke the words of Yahweh to the people, and he gathered together seventy men from the elders of the people, and he made them stand all around the tent. Then Yahweh went down in a cloud and spoke to him, and he took away the spirit that was on him, and he put it on the seventy elders. And as soon as the spirit was resting on them, they prophesied, but they did not do it again. So, Jeff, give us the highlights of what's happening in the story. Help us make sense of what's going on. So, the beginning of the story, Moses is struggling to keep up with all of the demands of the people. We know from reading the Old Testament that the Israelites were famous for murmuring, for having complaints constantly, and they're driving Moses crazy. So, he cries out to Yahweh for help. Like, come on, I've got to do something here. And Yahweh has a solution. He will take some of the spirit that Moses has on him and divide it among the 70 appointed elders will help him carry the weight of the people's complaints. These 70 men all prophesy. It's important to note that there's 70 of them. They're all Jews. They're all prophesying. They're all men. They're all older men. They're all free men. And the spirit is on them for a limited time. Eldad and Medad start prophesying in the camp. And someone comes to tell Moses about it. But Moses said to him, are you jealous for my sake? Would that he give all Yahweh's people prophets that Yahweh put his spirit on them? Do you think what Moses is saying here is somewhat prophetic? Absolutely. We're going to get that whenever we get to Joel 2 in future. Um, Yeah, so Eldad and Medad are starting to prophesy in the camp. Someone comes to tell Moses about it. And Moses is like, yeah, that's great. I wish everybody would do that. And then we get... Spoiler alert, this is going to get all the way up to Acts 2, where that prophecy is fulfilled. But first, we need to go to Joel 2. And it will happen afterward thus. I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters will prophesy, and your elders will dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. And also on the male slaves and on the female slaves, I will pour out my spirit in those days. And I will set wonders in the heavens and on earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun will be changed to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of Yahweh. And it will happen. Everyone who calls the name of Yahweh will be rescued because on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem will be those who escape as Yahweh said and among the survivors whom Yahweh is calling. Okay, after reading Numbers 11, this is really fascinating. Joel is prophesying exactly what Moses wished for. He says the spirit will be poured out on all flesh 
In Numbers, we saw the spirit was only on men who were Jews, who were old and free, and that power was limited. Now, Joel is saying that the spirit will be poured out and it won't be men only, but men and women will prophesy and young and old will see visions. This detail about all flesh would also seemingly include Jews and Gentiles, slave and free. Jeff, how do you understand the difference in the Holy Spirit in numbers and the spirit being foretold in Joel? Even this language of God putting the spirit on a few verses, pouring him out, seems to have a different meaning. What do you think about that? So we talked about how it was 70 Jews who prophesied. They're men, they're old, it's only free men. The spirit was limited. Now he's asking for the spirit to be poured out on all of the people. And that really goes against everything that the society at the time stood for. You had this social hierarchy that definitely had your slaves below your free men, your landowning people. And, you know, it's kind of weird to say that whenever you have Israelites coming out of Egypt and they really didn't have a land as a possession. Um, but you kind of still had this social hierarchy uh, within that pre- within those people. Um, it was also a patriarchy. You had the men leading the women. And in that, this kind of flips it on its head a little bit where you have old, uh, sorry, you have males and females who have access to the spirit. And it seems to be not in a limited way. Uh, You also have this talk about Jews and Gentiles. Whether you are a Jew or a Gentile, it doesn't matter. But, you know, the, the Israelites thought that God had them as their chosen people. He wouldn't pour his spirit out on another nation. That would show them that they were elevated, that they had the same status as Israel did. And I think that's the point. So really the difference in the spirit from Moses's time and the time we're looking ahead to is not just about the people who would receive it, but in what fullness it would be poured out. I think in the Old Testament, we often see that the spirit is put on a person or peoples for a set time where the spirit that we're looking ahead to is going to be for all time. Yeah. In the Old Testament, for example, you have Samson. And a couple of times it says that the Holy Spirit rushed upon him or the Spirit of God rushed upon him. And it gave him these abilities to do these feats of strength. In the New Testament, you see the Holy Spirit more as a guiding force. You do still see moments where the Holy Spirit seems to rush upon people like you see in Acts 10 where the Holy Spirit rushes on the Gentiles and marks them as people who are able to receive the Holy Spirit and receive baptism as a result. And you see the Spirit become a marker for those who are in Christ. From that point forward, we see the Holy Spirit take on a sense of a guiding role in the people's lives who have received the Holy Spirit. Some of those are then given the ability to perform miracles, but we see that that was not all of them because we see Simon the Magician attempting to purchase the ability to do miracles. Some would say that he was trying to purchase the ability to lay his hands on people and give them the ability to do miracles. But the text seems to allow for either option. I want to read a section from the Dictionary of Deities and Demons because I think that it gives a nice summary of what's going on here. In the capacity of a person, the spirit is described as being sent by God or coming upon people, presumably to stay with them and to become active when called upon. In particular, in Acts, this personal idiom is used. The Spirit speaks, sends, forbids, and appoints. Alternatively, people can lie to, tempt, resist, grieve, or insult the Spirit. The Spirit is described as being poured out like rain, 
People are filled with the Spirit as a momentary experience or are full of the Spirit as a permanent endowment. I say all of that to say that the Holy Spirit takes on a new role and is more permanently present after it is poured out in Acts 2. I'm currently reading a book called Union with Christ. So thinking about this concept goes along with that, that when we are unified with Christ, when the Holy Spirit does indwell us and we are walking in the spirit and living life with him, that we are, we have access to that guidance and, you know, the way that he'll enlighten scripture to us and help us understand things that we haven't been able to understand before or give us words when we don't know what to speak. And it's just so cool to think about. here in Joel, we're talking about the great and awesome day of the Lord. And that would be commonly thought of as a decreation event. And we see that even here, the societal structure is deconstructed. It wasn't just the priest offering sacrifice anymore. So I don't fully understand the day of the Lord talk. I never have. Like, I've always understood it as being the end of time. So that's not so in this context. Think about the day of the Lord as the opposite of what happened during creation. In the beginning, the earth was void and empty and darkness moved upon the face of the waters. God takes that void, empty, formless world and takes it and gives it order. The day of the Lord, he does just the opposite. God is maintaining this order throughout history, but he says, I'm going to let go. I'm going to let the world descend back into chaos. What you think is, is no longer. How you think the world works, it no longer works that way. God is no longer maintaining the cosmos. That doesn't mean that God's going to leave it uncreated. Think about what happened in the days of Noah, where God let the forces of nature come down upon everyone who was living at the time. But it wasn't to destroy the world and leave it destroyed. He created something from that and brought something new. In Joel, everything is deconstructed. The moon is turned into blood nature itself is coming apart. Even their societal structure is coming apart. And that's what we see happening here. So cool. Oh, I wanted to look at before we get to the end of uh, like, before we just ignore it, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. The version I read said rescued. It's a a verse that's quoted a few times in the New Testament. Um, The Jews had memorized it because it was used in their liturgy. And it was a very significant passage for Jews living at that time. And Isaiah also prophesies of a time to come that will fit into our narrative. So I want to read that before we go on. And I, their works and thoughts, am about to come to gather all nations and tongues, and they shall come and see my glory. And I will set a sign among them, and I will send survivors from them to the nations, Tarshish, Pul, and Lud, who draw the bow, Tubal and Javan, the faraway coastlands that have not heard of my fame and have not seen my glory. And they shall declare my glory among the nations and bring all your countrymen from all the nations as an offering to Yahweh on horses and chariots and in litters and on mules and camels to my holy mountain Jerusalem, says Yahweh. Just as the sons of Israel bring an offering and a clean vessel to the house of Yahweh, and indeed I will take some of them as priests and the Levites, says Yahweh, For just as the new heavens and earth that I'm about to make shall stand before me, declares Yahweh, 
so shall your descendants and your name stand. And this shall happen from new moon to new moon and from Sabbath to Sabbath. All flesh shall come to bow and worship before me, says Yahweh. You kind of get a hopeful message and a severe message there at the end. But you have all of these nations, all nations gathering on his holy mountain, Jerusalem. And look at all of the places that it mentions. You have Tarshish, Pool, Lud, Tubal, and Javan. Uh, these are places that had not heard his name. Now, Tarshish, we kind of think was in Spain, put for Africa. Lud, we don't know. Tubal, I don't know. Javan was another word for ancient Greece. But these are really far, far away places that hadn't even heard the name Yahweh. And we see several parallels here to Acts 2. I know we haven't read it, read it yet, but we can kind of gather a little bit from that. Um, we have the gathering of tongues. We have all nations being drawn to Jerusalem and all nations declaring God's glory. Um, and I, I kind of put in parentheses here in my notes, representatives of all flesh will be gathered on my holy mountain, Jerusalem, and they will declare Yahweh's glory among the nations. This kind of prophecy is a big deal because, like we mentioned a moment ago, the Jews were God's chosen people. And although Abraham knew all nations would be blessed through him, Israel had come to rest in their position as God's son and would be hesitant, if not outright hostile, toward the idea that all nations would have a place in Yahweh's kingdom. We have a time will come in fire. There's a whirlwind mentioned. Isaiah says the time will be a gathering of all nations and tongues that they will see his glory and declare it among the nations and all nations will be drawn to Jerusalem. So remember those specific details as we go into Acts 2. And when the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in the same place. And suddenly a sound like a violent rushing wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. And divided tongues like fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other languages as the Spirit gave them the ability to speak out. Now there were Jews residing in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the crowd gathered and was in confusion because each one was hearing them speaking in his own language. In Acts 1, we see the disciples were gathered in the upper room with Mary, Martha, and Utter... Utters? <laughs> <laughs> They're cows. <laughs> <laughs> there were others there. We were going to the, uh, Leah. The cows um, also prophesied. <laughs> <laughs> we're going to start that over. Um, in Acts 1, we see the disciples are all gathered in the upper room with Mary, Martha, and others, adding up to 120 in all. Then in Acts 2, we see the fulfillment of specific details that we saw in Isaiah. Fire, wind, divided tongues, Jews from every nation under earth. For Pentecost, Jews had traveled to Jerusalem from their homeland. The Spirit is poured out on all 120 people mentioned in Acts 1. Some will debate me on that. But no matter which version you read, the translations all agree that the Holy Spirit fell upon all of them. So you have to show some separation of just the 12 then, if you're going to argue that all only included the 12. Peter says that this is what was spoken about by the prophet Joel. In Joel's passage, the Holy Spirit falls on the people all the people, regardless of age, sex, or social status. It says that sons and daughters prophesy. On the day of Pentecost, they didn't have a megaphone set up. They weren't in an amphitheater. It makes practical sense then that you see this outpouring of the Spirit on all 120 of the people. And then they were able to go out into the city proclaiming the gospel to everyone in their own language. 
This makes more sense whenever you think about that there are 3,000 people baptized that day into Christ. Yeah, the Chosen has something that actually makes this make a little more sense for us. So at the feeding of the 5,000, you have Jesus giving a message and each of his disciples are kind of standing amongst a group of people relaying the message to everyone that was there. So if you're adding on this aspect of baptism, it would make sense if you're baptizing 3,000 people that you may need more than just the 12 to be involved in that. Yeah, it becomes a matter of practicality. I also do want to point out two words that connect us back to Genesis 11. That's kind of cool here. So the first one's divided. Um, In the Septuagint translation, that is the same word here that is in Genesis 11. And then we're also seeing a connection with the word bewildered. When each person was hearing the sermon in their own language, it says that they were bewildered. This is the same word from the Septuagint used for the people at battle, Babel when their language was confused. So confused and bewildered are being repeated here, just giving us that one extra connection to Genesis 11. So thinking back to Isaiah 66, there's some connections there too. Um, we have people gathered from all over. There are specific nations that are called out, each having a representative from that nation. So they could take the things that they've learned on this day back home with them and spread the gospel amongst their homelands. Um, We see people are present from east to west of the known world at the time. Isaiah 66, however, actually went further west than we see the nations who are specifically called out in Acts. So it's kind of cool if you're reading The Unseen Realm, Dr. Heiser goes into this. He points out that this is most likely why Paul was so adamant that he make it to Spain, seeing Isaiah 66 almost as a mission of his own to make sure that the nations listed are all reached. It's like he thought that that would be the end of his mission. As he got into it, the... um He didn't realize there was more world if he kept going. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Like he would be thinking, okay, we've officially reached the ends of the earth. We've done it. We've fulfilled the mission of Christ. But Peter, standing with the eleven, raised his voice and declared to them, Judean men and all those who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and pay attention to my words. For these men are not drunk, as you assume, because it is the third hour of the day. But this is what was spoken through the prophet Joel. And it shall be in the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters will prophesy, and your young men will see visions, and your old men will see dreams. Even on my male slaves and on my female slaves, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. And I will cause wonders in the heaven above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun will be changed to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and glorious day of the Lord comes. And it shall be that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Peter directly links Joel's prophecy to speaking of this very day. Again, we have sons and daughters prophesying, young and old seeing visions, slave and free receiving the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. All nations are invited then to the salvation of the Lord. And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, each one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children, all those who are far away, as many as the Lord God calls to himself. 
This isn't just a proof text for baptism. This is God's reclamation of the nations that he formerly disinherited. Okay, I'm going to try to kind of bring all this together. So in Genesis 12, God called Abraham from among the nations to separate a nation for himself. Okay, that was Israel. But his plan, as we've seen through the prophets and the establishment of the early church, was always to bring them back and to reclaim those nations and their lands for the kingdom of God. And this is where that conversation of the kingdom resonates so much with me and and is really exciting um, because Jesus came preaching the kingdom. And, you know, many will say that that was just about the morals. And we see that in the Sermon on the Mount. And yeah, that's true. But it's a little deeper than that. Jesus came preaching the kingdom, announcing to the world, to the nations, and even to the spiritual entities that God was taking back this land for himself. God isn't just taking back the peoples, but also the land, and they are all going to be part of God's kingdom. Um, Reversing Herman is this really good book that goes through the life of Jesus and kind of explains this, all the ways that he was directly nullifying and reversing the sin of the watchers and also the reclamation of the nations. Um, It's just so much deeper than some moral code. So we weren't really able to get into this a ton today. We'll have another episode on it, but the sons of God who resided over the nations did at some point rebel against Yahweh and they started accepting worship for themselves, acting as though they were God's worthy of worship. And it drove the other nations into all kinds of horrific sins. The things that these gods were encouraging and accepting from mankind was just insane. But through Christ's sacrifice, all were able to come into the presence of Yahweh's glory and his kingdom to be filled with the spirit, those who were near and those who are far off. What happened on the day of Pentecost is a reversal of what happened at the Tower of Babel. It is a reclaiming of all the nations to Yahweh. And the rest of Acts is essentially this pursuit of reaching the nations through the missionary journeys of Paul. It is absolutely fascinating to see all of this come together like that. So after this, you have many references to Gentiles being included, but also women. And Luke goes out of his way to highlight women in the rest of Acts. This is huge because women were not allowed to participate in communal meals in the Greco-Roman culture unless they were there for entertainment. Women were viewed as less intelligent, less capable, gullible, foolish. Women were lower class citizens until now. Christ brings the women dignity, inclusion, and favor in a world that views them as less than men. Luke specifically highlights events that include women among those spreading the gospel. Women were counted among the 120 at Pentecost, and they are specifically called out as those who are believe and are baptized in various places. Lydda leads the apostles to Dorcas when she dies. When Paul spoke to a group of only women, which was unheard of, we see Lydia was converted. We even see Philip's daughters prophesying in Acts 21. The inclusion of women and Gentiles would have been completely countercultural in this day, but we see Yahweh loves the ostracized and seeks out the unseen. In our culture, we may take this for granted a little bit, but how cool that the reclamation of the nations and the highlighting of women and Yahweh calling all people to himself gives us this opportunity and freedom 
worship him and makes us all heirs according to the promise that was given to Abraham all the way back in Genesis 12. For you are all sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Jesus Christ. And if you are Christ, then you are descendants of Abraham, heirs according to his promise. Thanks for joining us today and making it this far. Leave a rating and review if you liked it. Um, We're going to be posting once a month, so we'll see you on a podcast at the end of March. But you can hang out with us in the meantime on Facebook or Instagram at Strangely Biblical. We are about to start a series on God's character starting March 1st, and that'll be posting every day. So come leave comments, interact with us so we can get to know you all better too. Have a good month.